Chapter Three of With Clive in India. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Ullman. A Brush with Privateers. The night passed quietly. Once or twice lights were seen as the schooners showed a lantern for a moment to notify their exact position to each other. As soon as dawn broke, every man on board the Lizzie Anderson was at his post. The schooners had drawn up a little, but were still under easy sail. The moment that the day grew clear enough for it to be perceived that no other sail could be seen above the horizon, fresh sail was spread upon the schooners, and they began rapidly to draw up. On the previous evening, the four heavy guns had been brought aft, and the Indiamen could have made a long-running fight with her opponents, had the captain been disposed. To this, however, he objected strongly, as his vessel was sure to be hulled and knocked about severely, and perhaps some of his masts cut down. He was confident in his power to beat off the two privateers, and he therefore did not add a stitch of canvas to the easy sail under which he had been holding on all night. Presently, a puff of smoke shot out from the bow of the schooner from the weather quarter, followed almost instantaneously by one from her consort. Two round shocks struck up the water, the one under the Indiaman's stem and the other under her forefoot. The rascals are well within range, the captain said quietly. See, they are taking off canvas again. They intend to keep at that distance and hammer away at us just what I thought would be their tactics. Two more shots were fired by the schooners. One flew over the deck between the mast and plunged harmlessly in the sea beyond. The other struck the hull with a dull crash. It is lucky the ladies were sent into the hole, the captain said. That shot has gone right through their cabin. Now, my lads, have you got the sights well upon them? Fire! The four thirty-two pounders spoke out almost at the same moment, and all gazed over the bulwarks anxiously to watch the effect, and a cheer rose as it was seen how accurate had been the aim of the gunners. One shot struck the schooner to windward in the bow, a foot or two above the water level. Another went through her foresail close to the mast. A foot more, and you would have cut her foremast asunder. The vessel to leeward had been struck by only one shot, the other passing under her stern. She was struck just above her deck line, the shot passing through the bulwark and, as they thought, on board the merchantmen, narrowly missing, if not actually striking, the mainmast. There is some damage done, Dr. Ray said, keeping his glass fixed on the vessel. There is a good deal of running about on deck there. It was evident that the display of the heavy metal carried by the Indiaman was an unpleasant surprise to the privateers. Both lowered their sail and ceased firing, and there was then a rapid exchange of signals between them. They don't like it, the captain said, laughing. They see that they cannot play the game they expected and that they got to take as well as to give. Now it depends upon the sort of stuff their captains are made of whether they give it up at once or come straight up to close quarters. Ah, they mean fighting. As he spoke, a cloud of canvas was spread upon the schooners, and sailing more than two feet to the merchantman one, they ran quickly down towards her, firing rapidly as they came. Only the merchantman's heavy guns replied, 
but these worked steadily and coolly and did considerable damage the bowsprit of one of their opponents was shot away the sails of both vessels were pierced in several places and several ragged holes were knocked in their hulls if it were not that i do not wish to sacrifice any of the lives on board unnecessarily the captain said i would let them come alongside and try boarding we have a strong crew and with the sixty soldiers we should give them such a reception as they do not dream of however i will keep them off if i can now mr james he said to the first officer i propose to give that vessel to leeward a dose they are keeping abreast and by the course they are making will range alongside at about a cable's length when i give the word pour broadside with the guns to port upon that weather schooner at that moment gentlemen he said turning to the passengers i shall rely upon you to pick off the steersman of the other vessel and to prevent another taking his place she steers badly now and the moment her helm is free she'll run up into the wind as she does so i shall bear off to run across her bow and rake her deck with grape as we pass will you mr barlow order your men to be in readiness to open fire with musketry upon her as we pass the schooners were now running rapidly down upon the indiaman they were only able to use the guns in their bows and the fire of the indiaman from the heavy guns on her quarter or it was inflicting more damage than she received let all hands lie down on deck the captain orders they will open up with their broadside guns as they come up when i give the word let all the guns on the port side be trained at the foot of her mainmast and fire as you get the line on the starboard side lie down till i give the word it was a pretty sight as the schooners throwing the water high up from their sharp cut waters came running along heeling over under the breeze as they ranged alongside their topsails came down and a broadside from both was poured into the indiamen the great ship shook as the shot crashed into her and several sharp cries told of the effect which had been produced then the captain gave the word and a moment afterwards an irregular broadside as the captain of each gun brought his piece to bear was poured into the schooner from the guns on the port side as the privateer heeled over her deck could be plainly seen and the shot of the indiaman all directed at one point tore up a hole around the foot of the mainmast in an instant the spar tottered and with a crash fell alongside at the same moment three of the passengers took a steady aim over the bulwark of, at the helmsman of the other privateer and simultaneously with the reports of their pieces the man was seen to fall another sprang forward to take his place but again the rifle spoke out and he fell beside his comrade freed from the strain which had counteracted the pressure of her mainsail the schooner flew up into the wind the Indiaman held on her course for another length, and then her helm was put up, and she swept down across the bows of the privateer. Then the men leaped to their feet. The soldiers lined the bulwarks as she passed along a few yards only distance from her foe. Each gun poured a storm of grape along her crowded deck, while the troops and passengers kept up a continuous fire of musketry. That will do, the captain said quietly now we may keep her on her course they have had more than enough of it 
there was no doubt of that for the effect of the iron storm had been terrible and the decks of the schooner were strewn with dead and dying for a time after the merchantman had borne upon her course the sails of the schooner flapped wildly in the wind then the foremast went suddenly over the side i should think you could take them both captain thompson one of the passengers said they are as good as taken the captain answers and would be forced to haul down the flags if i were to wear around and continue the fight but they would be worse than useless to me i should not know what to do with their crews and should have to cripple myself by putting very strong price crews upon them and so run the risk of losing my own ship and cargo now my business is to trade and not to fight if any one meddled with me i am ready to take my own part but the company would not thank me if i were to risk the safety of this ship and a valuable cargo for the sake of sending home a couple of prizes which might be recaptured as they crossed the bay and would not fetch any great sum if they got safely into port an examination showed that the casualties on board the lizzie anderson amounted to three killed and eight wounded the former were sewn in hammocks with a round shot at their feet and dropped overboard the clergyman reading the burial service the wounded were carried below and attended to by the ship's surgeon and dr ray the ship's decks were washed and all traces of the conflict removed the guns were again lashed in their places carpenters were lowered over the side to repair the damages and when the ladies came on deck an hour after the conflict was over two or three ragged holes in the bulwarks and a half a dozen in the sails were the sole signs that the ship had been in action save that some miles astern could be seen the two crippled privateers with all sails lowered at work to repair damages two or three days afterwards charlie marriott and his friend peter were sitting beside dr ray when the latter said i hope that we shan't find the french in madras when we get there the french in madras charlie exclaimed in surprise why sir there's no chance of that is there a very great chance the doctor said don't you know that they captured the place three years ago no sir i'm ashamed to say that i know nothing at all about india except that the company have trading stations at bombay madras and calcutta i will tell you about it the doctor said it is as well that you should understand the position of affairs at the place to which you are going you must know that the company hold the town of madras and a few square miles of land around it as tenants of the nawab of the carnatic which is the name of that part of india the french have a station at pondicherry eighty-six miles to the southwest of madras this is a larger and more important town than madras and of course the greatest rivalry prevails between the english and french the french are much more powerful than the english and exercise a predominating influence throughout the carnatic the french governor monsieur duplic is a man of very great ability and far-seeing views he has a considerable force of french soldiers at his command and by the aid which he has given to the nawab upon various occasions he has obtained a predominating influence in his councils when war was declared between england and france in the year forty four the english squadron under commodore barnett 
was upon the coast and the company sent out orders to mr morris the governor of madras to use every effort to destroy the french settlement of whose rising power they felt the greatest jealousy dupleix seeing the force that could be brought against him and having no french ships on the station although he was aware that a fleet under admiral le bourdennes was fitting out and would arrive shortly dreaded the contest and proposed to mr morse that the indian colonies of the two nations should remain neutral and take no part in the struggle in which their respective countries were engaged mr morse however in view of the orders he had received from the company was unable to agree to this dupleix then applied to the nawab who at his request forbade his european tenants to make war on land with each other an order which they were obliged to obey in july seventeen forty six la bourdonnais arrived with his fleet and chased the small english squadron from the indian seas dupleix now changed his tactics and regardless of the injunction which he himself had obtained from the nawab he determined to crush the english at madras he supplied the fleet with men and money and ordered the admiral to sail for madras the fleet arrived before the town on the fourteenth of september landed a portion of its troops six hundred in number with two guns short distance along the coast and on the following day disembarked the rest consisting of a thousand french troops four hundred sepoys and three hundred african troops and summoned madras to surrender madras was in no position to offer any effectual resistance the fort was weak and indefensible the english inhabitants consisted only of a hundred civilians and two hundred soldiers governor morse endeavoured to obtain from the nawab the protection which he had before granted the dupleix a demand which the nawab at once refused i was there at the time and quite agreed with the governor that it was useless to attempt resistance to the force brought against us the governor therefore surrendered on the twenty-first the garrison and all the civilians in a place not in the service of the company were to become prisoners of war while those in the regular service of the company were free to depart engaging only not to carry arms against the french until exchanged these were the official conditions but la bourdonnais influenced by jealousy of dupleix and by the promise of a bribe of forty thousand pounds made a secret condition with mr morse by which he bound himself to restore my dress in the future upon the payment of a large sum of money this agreement dupleix whose heart was set upon the total expulsion of the english refused to ratify a good many of us considered that by this breach of the agreement we were released from our parole not to carry arms against the french and a dozen or so of us in various disguises escaped from madras and made our way to fort st david a small english settlement twelve miles south of pondicherry i made the journey with a young fellow named clive who had come out as a writer about two years before he was a fine young fellow as unfitted as you are i should think marryat for the dull life of a writer but full of energy and courage at fort st david we found two hundred english soldiers and a hundred sepoys and a number of us having nothing to do and our own work volunteered to aid the defence 
After Duplex had conquered Madras, the Nawab awoke to the fact of the danger of allowing the French to become all-powerful by the destruction of the English, and ordered Duplex to restore the place. Duplex refused, and the Nawab sent his son, Maphus Khan, to invest the town. Duplex at once dispatched a detachment of 230 French and 700 sepoys, commanded by an English officer named Paradise, to raise the siege. On the 2nd of November, the garrison of Madras sallied out and drove away the cavalry of Mahfuz Khan, and on the 4th, Paradise attacked his army and totally defeated it. This, lads, was a memorable battle. It is the first time that European and Indian soldiers had come into contest, and it shows how immense is the superiority of Europeans. What Paradise did then opens all sorts of possibilities for the future, and it may be that either we or the French are destined to rise, from mere trading companies to be the rulers of Indian states. Such, I know, is the opinion of young Clive, who is a very long-headed and ambitious young fellow. I remember his saying to me one night, when we were with difficulty holding our own in the trenches, that if we had but a man of energy and intelligence at the head of our affairs in southern India, we might, ere many years past, be masters of the Carnatic. I owe that it appears to be more likely that the French will be in that position and that we shall not have a single establishment left there, but time will show. Having defeated Marfas Khan, Duplex resolved to make a great effort to expel us from Fort St. David, our sole fitting left in southern India, and he dispatched an army of 900 Frenchmen, 600 sepoys, and 100 Africans, with six guns and mortars against us. They were four to one against us, and we had hot work, I can tell you. Four times they tried to storm the place, and each time we drove them back, till at last they gave it up in disgust, at the end of June, having besieged us for six months. Soon after this, Admiral Boscawan, with a great fleet and an army, arrived from England, and on the 19th of August besieged Pondicherry. The besieging army was 6,000 strong, of whom 3,720 were English, but Pondicherry resisted bravely, and after two months the besiegers were forced to retire, having lost in attacks or by fever 1,065 men. At the end of the siege, in which I had served as a medical officer, I returned to England. A few months after I left, peace was made between England and France, and by its terms Duplex had to restore Madras to the English. I hear that fighting has been going on ever since the English and French engaging as auxiliaries to rival naval princes, and especially that there was some hot fighting around Devakota. However, we shall hear about that when we get there. And what do you think will be the result of it all, Dr. Ray? I think that undoubtedly, sooner or later, either the French or ourselves will be driven out, which it will be remains to be seen. If we are expelled, the effect of our defeat is likely to operate disastrously at Calcutta, if not at Bombay. The French will be regarded as a powerful people whom it is necessary to conciliate, 
while we shall be treated as a nation of whom they need have no fear and whom they can oppress accordingly if we are successful and absolutely obtain possession of the carnatic our trade will vastly increase french posts and commands of all sorts will be established and there will be a fine career open to you young fellow in the service of the company after rounding the cape of good hope the ship encountered a series of very heavy gales which drove her far out of her course up the eastern coast of africa in the last gale her foremast was carried away and she put into a small island to refit she had also sprung a leak and a number of stores were landed to enable her to be taken up into shallow water and heeled over in order that the leak might be got at the captain hurried on the work with all speed had it not been for this charlie heard him say to mr ashmead i would have rigged a jury mast and proceeded but i can't stop the leak from the inside without shifting a great portion of the cargo and our hole is so full that this would be difficult in the extreme but i own that i do not like delaying a day longer than necessary here the natives have a very bad reputation beside which it is suspected that one if not more pirates have their rendezvous in these seas several of our merchantmen have mysteriously disappeared without any gale having taken place which would account for their loss the captain of a ship which reached england two or three days before we sailed brought news that when she was within a fortnight's sail of the cape the sound of guns were heard one night and that afterwards a ship was seen on fire low down on the horizon he reached the spot soon after daybreak and found charred spars and other wreckage but though he cruised about all day he could find no signs of any boats complaints have been made to government and i hear that there is an intention of sending two or three sloops out here to hunt the pirates up but that will be of no use to us upon the day of their arrival at the island a native sailing boat was seen to pass across the mouth of the bay when half across she suddenly tacked round and sailed back in the direction from which she had come before proceeding to lighten the ship the captain had taken steps to put himself in a position of defence for some distance along the centre of the bay the ground rose abruptly at a distance of some thirty yards from the shore forming a sort of natural terrace behind this a steep hill rose the terrace which was forty feet above the water level extended for about a hundred yards when the ground on either side of the plateau dropped away as steeply as in front the guns were the first things taken out of the ship and regardless of the remonstrances of the passengers at what they considered to be a waste of time captain thompson had the whole of them taken up on the terrace a small battery was thrown up by the sailors at the two corners and in each of these two of the thirty-two pounders were placed the broadside guns were ranged in line along the centre of the terrace now the captain said when at the end of the second day the preparations was completed by the transport of a quantity of ammunition from the ship's magazines to the terrace i feel comfortable we can defend ourselves here against all the pirates in the south seas if they don't come we shall only have lost our two days work and shall have easy minds for the remainder of our stay here which we should not have had 
if we had been at the mercy of the first of those scoundrels who happened to hear of our being laid up the next morning the work of unloading the ship began the bales and packages being lowered from the ship as they were brought up from the hole into boats alongside then taken to the shore and piled there at the foot of the slope this occupied three days and at the end of that time the greater portion of the cargo had been removed the ship now several feet lighter in the water than before was broadside to shore until her keel touched the ground then the remaining cargo was shifted and by the additional aid of tackle and purchases on shore fastened to a mast she was heeled over until her keel nearly reached the level of the water it was late one evening when this work was finished and the following morning the crew were to begin to scrape a bottom and the carpenters were to repair the leak and the whole of the seams under water were to be corked and repitched hitherto all had remained on board but previous to the ship being heeled over tents constructed of the sails were erected on the terrace beds and other articles of necessity landed and the passenger and troops and crew took up their temporary abode there end of chapter three